Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. How are you? Good. Give me a thumbs up. Great, because I, I can't see anything behind those masks. So, um, so brilliant. Wow. I could listen to Ali say those, those sentences over and over again. I don't know about you. He's just got one of those voices that I just think, yes, tell me again, Ali, about God. So um, it's been a great series so far. We've been talking about this unchanging God, and Nathaniel kicked us off, and he talked about the unchanging nature of God's glory and his mercy. Then Raphael, he, he talked to us about the unchanging nature of God's omniscience, that he knows everything about us and everything. And then Lydia talked about God's unchanging faithfulness. Wow. And then last week, Jen talked to us about God's unwavering commitment to reconciling us to himself and the world to himself and us to one another, God the reconciler. And Luke said to me, he said, well, you can just talk about anything, anything about God. And here's the nature of this series, right? We could preach this for a thousand years and the well would never run dry because God is infinite. In fact, we're going to spend ages in eternity. Oh, hi, upstairs. And we're going to spend eternity as well just thinking about God and worshipping him and enjoying him forever. And it's going to be amazing. So if we were preaching this well, you'd come back to us week after week and, we'd say, and you'd say, tell us more, tell us more, tell us more, because he is unchanging. He's amazing. And there's a verse in Daniel chapter 11. It says this, the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. So this isn't some kind of self-centered pursuit today, although it's wonderful to know about God. Here's the truth. If we get to know God better, it makes us strong, it makes us stand firm, and it stops us being apathetic and ineffective. It makes us take action. So today, we're going to dive into 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, as we talk about the God of grace. And that's what I'm talking about today, the God of grace. So 1 Peter 5, verse 10. And it says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. He uses this phrase, the God of all grace. And if you know this God of all grace, he makes you strong, firm, and steadfast. So the word grace, if you've never heard it before, it simply means undeserved favor from God. It means a blessing from God, something free that is given from him to you and to me. And we often perhaps use the phrase, if you're a Christian particularly, the grace of God. Am I right? That would often be in a prayer that we pray, God's grace, the grace of God. But this is the phrase that Peter uses. He says, the God of all grace. I just want to draw a quick distinction in those things because sometimes we think of the grace of God that something that God does for us, something that God just gives to us, perhaps reluctantly, because sinful people like you and me who fail require a lot of grace. Am I right? So we think, oh, we're thankful for God's grace. But here's the question. Is God really like that? Is that really the essence of his being? And the answer that Peter gives us is, Well, yeah, he says the very fabric, the very nature of God is he's the God of all grace. Whether you are sinful or whether you weren't, this is one thing that you would know about God, that that he is unchangingly gracious and grace-filled. 
I, I remember talking to a teacher once who was just a brilliant teacher, had really good discipline, control, teaching skills. And uh, I said, wow, how, how do you do that? And he says, he just shrugged. He said, well, it's all a bit of an act, really. Because <laughs> he said, you know, the kids think I'm like this in the classroom. He says, but actually, I'm quite a nice person. <laughs> and sometimes that's our fear about God, that, that perhaps his grace is just something he does, but not something he is. Well, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, it talks about coming to the throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. At the very center of the universe, God is sat on a throne, and that's a throne of grace. His reign is characterized by grace. Charles Spurgeon, the preacher, when he was commenting on this verse, the throne of grace, said these words. He said, it is a throne set up on purpose for the dispensation of grace a throne from which every utterance is an utterance of grace. The scepter that is stretched out from it is the silver scepter of grace. The decrees proclaimed from it are the purposes of grace. The gifts that are scattered down its golden steps are the gifts of grace. And he that sits upon the throne is grace itself. He is grace. God is grace. And that grace is undeserved. And because he is the God of grace, we would expect his grace to be evidence in everything we know about the world we live in. Because surely everything he touches, a bit like Midas in mythology, you know, everything he touches turns to gold. Well, everything that our God, our creator touches is filled with the grace of God. Theologians call this idea common grace. And that's not common in the sense of wipe it off your shoe kind of grace. It's the sense of it's there for everybody to see and observe and to know. So it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 5, verse 45, it says about God, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Anybody here bask in the sun the other week when it was nice? By the way, did nobody else get the memo about shorts today? Is it, is it just me? Me and Callum, okay, fine. Um, when we're basking in the sun, it's not because we've been good or bad, or indifferent, is because God loves to make the sunshine on the world. And if you turned on your tap and water flowed out of it, it's because the rains came and filled the reservoirs. It's common grace in creation. But, you know, there's more to common grace. You know, knowledge, human knowledge, human ability to think is a, is a common grace. It's something that God gives to all the people of the world. I mean, let's talk about science for a moment. Anybody in this room benefited from science at all in the last year? Just let me ask that question. Anybody? Yes, we all have. And we all do all of the time, vaccines or not. Because God's given an ability to think and to develop ideas and to discover and to learn. And human beings are incredibly able to do that because God made them that way. It's a common grace what about this common grace? Arts and music and literature. From Beethoven to Bieber, from Pollock to Picasso, from Tolstoy to Tolkien. When you listen to music, when you read, it does something to your soul because it's the grace of God. And most people are not believers or Christians, but we understand this. There's a grace, a blessing that comes through those things. And in society itself, you were born into a family. 
and you have a family or you have a community around you. Well, whose idea was that? Well, it was God's. He says he's the God from whom every family on earth in heaven derives its name. See, family, community is the grace of God to everybody. It's amazing, isn't it? Okay, should we get specific? Okay, let's stay general. Right, no, no, let's get specific. So that was common grace. Now, here's the wonder of the gospel, that if you're a Christian, you understand that there's a special grace that has been made available and come to the human race in the person of Jesus. And Peter, whose verse we read today, and his other, uh, one of the other apostles, John, they knew that, and every, apostle, every other apostle, John said in chapter 1, verse 14, he said, Jesus, the word, he came from the Father. What was he full of? Grace. Grace and truth. And then, just to kind of recap that, two verses later, he says, so out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Undeserved favor upon undeserved favor. Grace, grace, blessing, blessing, favor, favor to you and to me because of the person of Jesus. Do you know, I don't think, to my knowledge, anybody ever said this about the prophets. Nobody ever said you know, Ezekiel, he's so full of grace. No, they, they were full of truth. They were full of calling people back and saying judgment was coming. But, you know, Hebrews 1, it says that in the past, God spoke through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And the message that comes through the son and the message that is the son is the fullness of grace and truth. And judgment is withheld. Judgment is pushed into the future. But John chapter 3, verse 16 says, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17 says this, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's a message about grace. It gets recapped for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 which says, it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is the very basis of your and my relationship with God. Let's touch on that word boast for a moment. Let's talk about your greatest moments. Let's talk about your greatest days. We've all got them, haven't we? You know, it might be a a relationship. The the day you met your your future spouse or the day that you celebrated the birth of a child or adoption or it, it could be a day when you landed that dream job or you got to travel to that amazing place. It could be that day when you won the BMX gold medal for BMX racing. And you'd have a story to tell, but at the heart of all of those stories would be a backstory that somehow involved you. Am I right? (laughs) That somehow there'd be something that you contributed along the way to say, yeah, and I had a part to play in that, and this is what I did. And, hey, it's wonderful to celebrate the, 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 the wonderful things that happen in life. But, you know, when you ask a Christian, what is their greatest moment? 
a Christian would say this. Actually, my greatest moment happened long before I was born. (laughs) My greatest moment happened in a land I've probably never been to. My greatest moment happened on a cross outside of a city wall in Jerusalem where the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He was crucified and he took my sin and he rose again and he brought me to know God. That's the Christian's greatest moment, am I right? He loved me and gave himself for me. In the words of a hymn, it says, Grace and love like mighty rivers flowed incessant from above. And it wasn't because of anything we did. It was because of a free gift that came from God to us, not by works. When Peter talks about this God of all grace, I wonder if he remembered that first time he met Jesus. You can read about it sometime in Luke chapter 5. And the story goes that he's been working hard all night fishing. And he hasn't caught a single fish. And he's there, probably really annoyed, and he's fixing the nets that didn't even catch any fish. And Jesus comes along and he says, hey, Peter, shall we go fishing? And Peter says, I've been working hard all night and I haven't caught anything. He says, because you say the word, Jesus, we're going to go fishing. And you know what Peter had spent a whole night trying to do by self-effort, trying to fish as fishermen do, Jesus did in a moment without any effort at all by speaking a word. He experienced grace. He experienced the free gift of God. That was the first time that he came to know about it. We have a, a phrase in our culture which politicians and teachers love to use, hard work always pays off doesn't always pay off because Peter worked hard and it didn't pay off hard work does generally pay off in life it kind of gets us places but here's the thing that hard work will never get you a relationship with God that only comes as a free gift hallelujah in another hymn the author wrote these words he says when I survey the wondrous cross my richest gain I count but loss And he's quoting Philippians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul is naming all of his greatest achievements in life. And he had many, many, many. And then the Apostle Paul, he says, you know what? He says, when I think about all those things, all of my learning, all of my education, everything that I've achieved, he said, that's rubbish compared with Jesus. That's rubbish compared with the grace of God, the free gift I've received in him. You know, our media is alive uh, at the moment with stories of wealthy people and rockets going into space. And here's the thing, it's like they are so, so rich they can even buy a rocket (laughs) and they can even get into space and people laugh and ridicule, all those things. But if the Apostle Paul had that much money and a rocket to get himself into space, he would go on the TV and he'd look at his rocket and he said, it's totally rubbish compared with Jesus in whom I have received every spiritual blessing. It says that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that he's blessed us, you, me, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The riches of God's grace freely given to you and me. 
Here's something else that happened in your greatest moment on the cross 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of Jerusalem. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, it says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, he had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's a two-parter. It's a two-parter. He takes our sin and our failure. Our culture today excuses sin. It says, I don't feel bad about that. It's just the way you are. But we feel that guilt somehow. But Jesus, he takes our sin. Do you know there was never an uglier moment in human history than when Jesus died on the cross and took our sin? He became sin. He became sinful pride. He became anger. He became bitterness. He became racism. He became pornographic addictions. He became lust. He became paedophilia. He became drunkenness. He became greed. He became sin. And God fully punished all of our sins and the sins of the world in his son. It's the darkest day in history. But here's the result of that, that we get acquitted. We're justified. The Bible says it's just as if I'd never sinned. The the judge speaks over us, not guilty, because the sin has been taken by another. What did you and I contribute to this relationship with God? Sin. Easy. (laughs) There's one more thing that we're going to contribute, but we'll come on to that later on. But here's the second part of what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. He took your sin, and in exchange, he gave you his total righteousness. He gave you all that is good about himself. He gave you his love, his mercy, his holiness, his kindness, his gentleness, his purity, his humility, all given to you as a gift. That's how God sees you in Christ. Let's talk about football. We've got theological there for a moment. So let's, let's bring it back to the, the language of the masses. So, um, so Neymar, right, best football, well, one of the best footballers in the world. He doesn't play for Barcelona anymore. He plays for PSG. But let's just say for a moment that you are a Neymar fanatic. You've got photos of him in all stages of his career on your wall. You've got his autograph You've got everything. You go and see him play in every match he plays, and you're there. You're in the stadium, and it's time for kickoff, and he's there. He's ready to kick the ball. And the referee's about to blow his whistle. And then Neymar motions to the referee, says, just pause, please. And he just jogs over to your side of the stadium, and he starts beckoning. He says, come. And nobody else seems to be seeing it, and you think, I... I I think he's calling me. And so you come down the steps and you think, I, I, I think he's talking to me. And you get to the barrier and he says, yeah, come over, please. And the security guards let you through onto the pitch. And he puts his arm around you. And he says, I want you to play. And in humility, you say, well, Neymar, you're like the greatest footballer in the world. And I'm, if I'm honest, I'm second tier. 
perhaps third. And he says, oh yeah, don't worry about that. And he pulls off his shirt and he pulls it over your head. And he says, I'm giving you my shirt. You are literally thinking at this moment, this is the greatest moment of my life. Neymar has put his shirt on me. But then the reality hits you and you say, well, uh, Neymar, I, I need some skills. I can't just take your place. And he says, oh, don't worry about that. And he lays his hands on you and he says, I'm giving you all of my skills. And you, and you just feel like your feet beginning to dance inside and you think, whoa, I'm feeling different. And he says, off you go. He takes your seat. You run onto the pitch. You do the kickoff. Here's what happens in that game. You score the winner. You head into the corner of the net in the 90th minute with your Neymar shot on your back. Nobody knows who you are. But all the teams suddenly put you on their shoulders and they start carrying you around the stadium and everybody is applauding. And they say, who is this kid? Who is this guy? And the standing ovation goes around the stadium and then you come to the stand where Neymar is sitting and he's also applauding. And you pick him out of the crowd and you bring him out and you motion to the crowd and you point to him and the crowd goes wild literally louder than any crowd you've ever heard in history, as they think, who is this person that can do this to a human being? Well, do you know, the Bible says that Jesus has clothed you. He's put his shirt on you. He's put his robe of righteousness on you. He's made you, in God's sight, of the same standing as himself. And not only that, he's changed you on the inside. He's put a heart of flesh inside you that's responsive to God and he's filled you with his Holy Spirit so that you can do the works that Jesus did. And it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, when it talks about the grace of God evidenced in lives, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. It says in Romans 8, there's, a, there's a, a waiting for the children of God to be revealed in eternity, that the angels and all of creation is just waiting. You know, there's a moment when people see human beings that have, have come to know Jesus as they are, as children of God, when heaven and earth will stand in ovation and applaud and say, look what God has done. And you'll think, why is everybody applauding? And you'll spin around and you'll see Jesus and you'll point to him and the crowd will go wild. It's not about me. It's about him. I'm just wearing his shirt. There's another picture in in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3. It's a prophetic picture. And it's a picture of Joshua, the high priest of Israel. And he's wearing clothes covered in excrement. And he's trying to stand before God, but he's feeling a bit awkward about it. And it says that Satan, in the picture, is standing next to him, accusing him. No doubt telling him that he's covered in dirt. And the Lord comes and he rebukes Satan. He says, no, this is my chosen one. And he commands the angel, he says, take those dirty clothes off him and put some new ones on. And give him a hat. See, what God has done for you in Christ is to take off your dirty clothes and to put on his righteousness. And best of all, he silenced the accuser. 
Some of you here, even as you were re-engaging with church life, some of you hear that whisper again and again, you don't belong here, you're not good enough. Everyone else is doing better than you are. Everyone else means it when they sing. Well, the accuser has been silenced. Grace silences him because God has counted you clean in his sight and acceptable to him. And because he's the God of all grace, he has ultimate say over all the seasons of your life, your past, your present, and your future. Let me read to you one verse from Romans chapter 8, verse 29 to 30, which is a complicated verse. We're not going to unpack it. I just want you to see the sweep of what the God of grace does. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The grace of God was active, and the God of grace was active in your past, long before you were born, to allow you to come to know him. The God of grace was active in your life to call you. Perhaps you're hearing him call your, call your name today. Listen to him if you hear him calling. The God of grace, he counted you righteous in his sight. He justified you. But not only that, he's included your future as part of the done deal as well. Glorified, your future state in eternity with God forever, decided now because of what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. God has your past, present, and future in his hands. The God of grace will continue to pour out grace in your life every day, as he always has done and he always will until eternity when we'll worship the God of grace forever. But let me just give you, as we wrap things up here, let me give you just a few applications of grace. The whole point of grace is it's something free and to be received. So I'm not trying to give you a to-do list here. First of all, I want to say if you've never received the gift of grace in Jesus, if you've never received salvation as something free, I'd like you to do that today. And I'd like to invite you to do that today. And you simply say to God, Lord, I can't do this. I can't know you by myself. I can't stand forgiven other than the free gift you give to me. Here's something for you today. If you're, you've been finding life hard and you've been trying to work some difficult things through, the Apostle Paul found that sometimes, and this is the secret he learned in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. He said, I asked God to take the struggle away. He says, but... I found the strength I needed was from God himself as a free gift. Here's a third application of the God of grace at work in your life. He wants us to practice the gifts of grace. He wants us to turn on the taps. Some, as we're kind of coming out of lockdown, and as Chris said, sometimes some of us are just feeling like, well, I'm still a bit tired, and I just don't, I'm not quite ready to re-engage and fill my time again with serving opportunities. Do you know... When we actually turn on the taps, the grace of God flows through us. Other people receive the free grace of God, and we get refreshed in that process when God uses us. It says in 1 Peter 4, 
Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Here's the fourth thing you can do. You can pursue the plan of grace. Ephesians 2.10 says that he has created us to do good works, which he planned in advance for us to do. When we pursue the grace of God, we find ourselves actively choosing to do stuff that he calls us to do. And here's the, the final idea. To initiate conversations of grace, Colossians 4 says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Here's an idea for you. This week, why don't you ask God for a conversation where you could talk something about the grace of God. You could be going into the supermarket today after church to buy something and the cashier might say, what have you been up to today? And you might just say something provocative like, I've been learning today just how much God loves us in church. And they might say, today, oh, that sounds interesting. They might, not, they might not respond and want to chat about it, which is also fine. But if, somebody, if, we, if we season our conversation with salts, then the grace of God, his undeserved favor can flow through our conversation. It's also free. It's also undeserved. It's wonderful. Ephesians 2 verse 8 that we looked at earlier tells us this, that this gift is received through faith. Our contribution is sin and faith. And the verse even says, actually, well, the faith actually ultimately comes from God. But here's something that you and I must do today. It's to put our full trust in Jesus. There was once a story of a missionary. He was from Glasgow. His name was John Patton. And he was... Uh, he was taking the good news about Jesus to, admit to, a, to a tribe in the, in the South Pacific. It was a cannibalistic tribe that nobody had ever sort of interacted with before. This is uh, in the 18th, 19th century. And he spent decades trying to translate John's gospel so that they could uh, hear the good news in their own language. And he got to John chapter 1, verse 8, which says, whoever... To, to whoever received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And they didn't have a word for believe or trust in their language. I think cannibals perhaps aren't the most trusting of people. And so he's saying, how am I going to struggle? How, how am I going to encourage people to believe, to trust? And his servant came in. And he was thinking about this, and he was sitting on his chair, and he he sat on his chair and he says, what am I doing? And the guy used the way to, to sit. He said, yeah, that, that's what. And he, he says, okay, what am I doing now? And he lifted his legs and his arms high up in the air so all of his weight was on the chair. And he says, what am I doing now? And the servant used a phrase meaning to put your full weight upon. And that's the word he used every time he came across the word to believe or to trust in John's gospel. Today, God wants you and I to put our full trust in him and in what he has done, in the grace he has given and in the God of all grace. Lord, we want to thank you today for the wonder of your grace in everything we see and know, in every blessing that you've given us. Lord, help us to be mindful of all the good things you give to us. But Lord, I want to pray that you'd open up our eyes more and more to the wonder of grace in Jesus. 
I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to rest in the grace of God today and to rest on that grace. I pray for anyone who doesn't yet know you in that way yet today. I pray, would you help them to put their trust in you? I pray for any of us who are just needing to know that grace is sufficient today. Would you just come and help us, Lord? I pray for any of us who are just needing to know that confidence that grace gives us as we talk and share with others. Would you fill us, Holy Spirit? Amen.